Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, February the 28th, 2023, last day of February. Uh, spring is imminent, but there's not a lot of spring, or it doesn't seem as if there's a lot of spring in the air when it comes to politics in, in America, at least. America remains as divided as ever, it would seem, from the uh, headlines in today's newspapers. Lots of fighting today about Joe Biden's effort to forgive student debt. Um, the case is being heard at the Supreme Court today. Uh, Ron DeSantis now is visiting early primary states, selling his Florida record, according to the New York Times. I think that probably 50% or maybe a little more than 50% of people in Florida love him and 40 or 50% of Floridans uh, like him a lot less. So he's a very divisive figure. Um, Hunter Biden is back. Uh, he's back in law courts. Hunter De Biden, of course, uh, an incredibly divisive figure on both sides of the aisle. Uh, one of the big headlines today is the newspapers have dropped Dilbert, the comic, uh, after Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, called uh, Black Americans a, a hate group. Uh, he's a particularly divisive character. And even this um, issue has divided America. Elon Musk has suggested that the U.S. media is racist uh, over the comic script backlash. So America, at least uh, to me, seems as divided as ever. Uh, but my guest today um, might see the glass as half full rather than half empty. He's a young man, Ryan Bernstein. And he spent uh, the last couple of years traveling around America. Uh, he has a new book coming out later in March called 50 States of Mind. He has um, a podcast on the same subject. Um, and he has spent his time in Tocquevillian style traveling around America, uh, asking the question, is America as divided as it seems, as it happens? Ryan is joining us from Mexico, but um, he has a good uh, vantage point to look at America. So, Ryan, to begin, let's start with that question. Is America as divided as it seems from those headlines I just showed? Well, uh, I love that you brought up the idea of the glass being half full because I am drinking a glass of water and I do see it as half full. The it looks book, half empty to me, Ryan. But I, maybe exactly. It's all a matter of, of perspective. And I think what I'm going to say could sound a little naive. Uh, so I'm going to preface it with a quote really quick. And this is a quote from uh, the late, great Madeleine Albright. So she says in her book, Fascism, A Warning, uh, came out in 2017. At many levels, contempt has become a defining characteristic. Excuse me. At many levels, contempt has become a defining characteristic of American politics. It makes us unwilling to listen to what others say, unwilling in some cases to even allow them to speak. This stops the learning process cold and creates a ready-made audience for demagogues who know how to bring diverse groups of the aggrieved 
together in righteous opposition to everyone else. So I share that quote because those are the stakes of being divided. I very much wanted to go and see people around the country and find something optimistic, but it was also a choice. I think when things are so divided in America, it's very easy to see things and feel hopeless. But the book is about my journey, trying to find the good things that we can look at. Uh, and this means sometimes looking a little bit more locally. It means looking at someone who started a nonprofit that helps young college graduates uh, find jobs or pairs up big brothers with little brothers or big sisters with little sisters to help with their homework or people who start new restaurants in areas that don't have a lot of economic opportunity or use the arts to cause uh, conversations in the community or nonprofits that help us talk to each other with a little more civility. So when you look at the news, it's so easy to feel hopeless. It's so easy to see these huge titans who are fighting with each other, Democrats, Republicans, billionaires, uh, the media canceling people. But I wanted to go and look and see what was happening on the ground to see if I would feel a little bit, bit better about America. And the good news is I do. In our communities, there are a lot of great things happening. It doesn't mean that these big, difficult political issues aren't happening, but it means that there's also people that are trying to find the positive, trying to find the glass half full with what we have. So that's a little bit about what the book is about. So Ryan, you, you did your 23,000 mile journey around America. Tell me a little bit about yourself. You're quite a young man. Yeah, yeah. I know you studied both in the US and in the UK. What triggered this journey? Well, Andrew, I was one of those young people who decided to find purpose in their life by working on a 2016 presidential campaign. So I had just graduated from college and I moved out to Los Angeles, but I felt people being tired of me talking about politics. So I joined a campaign, moved to Iowa and worked for uh, Hillary Clinton, who eventually became the Democratic nominee and lost by a few uh, tenth of a percentage of uh, votes in Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, but won the popular vote by three million. And it was a very big wake up call for me because I am from a Rust Belt town called Rockford, Illinois. And a lot of the people I grew up with faced economic hardships. And I realized that during these Trump years, things were gonna get very divisive and people were gonna stop asking questions and people were gonna try to find easy answers. I went to Oxford as a graduate student and from the vantage point of sitting in the UK, I realized that the answers that I needed to find about my own country were with the people around the country, not just with my friends from college or people in the big cities that I had lived with, but going to places that I had never been, small towns, hearing from people in the South, Alaska, the Northeast, Hawaii, and trying to find those stories to see if there was a common perspective that uh, kind of united the people in the country amidst so much division in the news. So I would say working in politics and being from the Midwest were sort of my two impetuses to travel around. And I also just love chatting with people. I love to travel. I love to see new places. And I have an equal love for the highbrow, the middlebrow, and the lowbrow. 
And those are what I try to seek out. No story was too small. Uh, no politician was too big to talk to. And uh, I'm really grateful to the American people who let me stay in their homes sometimes, trusted me to come into their mayor's office or talk to me in their restaurant that they own. Uh, I, I, I experienced a lot of hospitality and I think that's part of why I'm so hopeful because there are a lot of people who just never get asked questions that do wanna share their stories and their perspectives. And in the current political dialogue or, or lack of political dialogue, I feel like a lot of people feel misunderstood and they don't feel heard. And that leads to some of the consternation that we feel right now in America. Ryan, this kind of journey, of course, um, brings to mind the journey of Alexis de Tocqueville uh, back in the 19th century. You, you refer to him in your work. Um, is there anything that you, your, your journey in the 2020s shared with the journeys in America? It wasn't, of course, 50 states back then that uh, Tocqueville, uh, de Tocqueville experienced in the uh, first half of the 19th century. Well, it's interesting. Uh, we were both actually 26 when we undertook the journey, which when I found that out, I was like, well, if he could do it, I, I must be able to do it as well. But I think the moment that he was in was actually very similar to the moment that I was traveling in. Um, Andrew Jackson was president, uh, a populist, someone that turned over the tables on what had come before, uh, allowed regular people into the White House. People called him a tyrant. He overturned the will of the Supreme Court when it came to uh, Native American issues. We were in a very divided time under Andrew, under Andrew Jackson, as we were under President Trump. But what Tatofa was looking for was what makes American democracy different and special. And he came from a vantage point of the, the terror and the uncertainty of what had happened in revolutionary France in the late 1700s and the instability that led into the 1800s. So he was really looking at democracy with an almost academic lens. And I wanted to take the same impartiality and look at different communities and say, does this still work? This experiment these associations that he talked about he he talked about americans are always forming associations going to clubs you know forming uh town halls and i wanted to see if that still happened across the country because you know we read books like bowling alone how bowling teams are on the decline people aren't showing up for institutions anymore and i felt very heartened to see that there are people that are still trying to make these things happen because I personally think that social media has led to us backing away from those institutions a little bit, feeling like we can participate in democracy by tweeting something really snarky or sharing an article. But what Alexis, as I like to call him, discovered was that we're better when we're together and we're better when we're a part of a community. And that's what makes American democracy great. And we can't let that slip away. We need to keep showing up in our community and forming those associations that make democracy work because those relationships are the most important thing. And if we shut each other out and we stop talking to each other, then American democracy stops working. 
I take your point, but of course, the top well, not of course, but when the Tocqueville came to America, he was doing it not actually to write a book. He was doing it um, as an observer of the American criminal justice system, of the prison system, which at that point he viewed at least as a model for France, which had a much more archaic and brutal criminal justice system. We did a show last week with um, Daniel Hatcher on how the U.S. criminal justice system now commodifies children and the poor. It seems to have evolved to a way in which it's designed to sell children to foster homes, um, and it certainly discriminates against the poor. America has changed since. I mean, I take your point on the Tocqueville, and maybe Americans have historically always been a, a, a friendly, um, hospitable culture, people. But the criminal justice system, for example, today seems to lag behind Europe. It's much more archaic, much more primitive, isn't it? I mean, if I the Tocqueville was to reappear today in the 2020s, I think he would be horrified with the way in which America now lags behind Europe on, on so many things. I completely agree. And, and part of the book was trying to find as many perspectives as possible. And I talked to a formerly incarcerated person in the state of Wisconsin, and we talked about this issue specifically, how there is no pathway to getting back to society when you have that sort of scarlet letter of being an incarcerated person. Uh, we leave people out in the cold. Uh, his name was Carl Fields, and now he is the head of the hospitality center in Racine, Wisconsin. And he really candidly explained his experiences and the stigma that come with being an incarcerated person. And part of this idea of having conversations and, and talking to people, it's not just an academic issue, the prison industrial complex. There are people in our communities that have experienced these things, that have those pieces of knowledge and I never would have gotten in touch with Carl if I hadn't been going to do community service in Racine. So this is all not to say that there aren't problems, but I'm saying that we can solve these problems when we meet people and educate each other. And that's part of showing up, doing community service, form these associations. That education comes from people in your community in addition to reading scholarly articles, reading the news, uh, and that's part of the education I had as well. This, this book was very much trying to showcase voices of people across the country that you may never get a chance to meet because their experiences and their stories are the piece that I feel like can be missing from policy. And that's what changes hearts and minds. When you hear someone's stories and you actually hear the implications of our criminal justice system on people's lives, that's what this book is all about. And those stories, I think, elevate us away from the political conversation about, you know, the abstract of the criminal justice system to, well, this is what happened to one person in this scenario in the state of Wisconsin. How can we learn from that? How can we learn from his experiences? And how can we make people understand what those policies actually mean? So it's about the, the human piece. R Ryan, um, when the Tocqueville came to America, his... The, the thing that struck him most was the absence of aristocracy. He came, of course, from a particularly aristocratic culture, 
he was part of that and he was also in some ways critical a rebel against french the french aristocratic system he came to america and he saw a democratic culture a democratic society of, of relative equality um again i guess this question is in some ways just part two of what i said earlier but america today is as unequal uh, almost as any society in human history aristocracy has reappeared it's certainly in economic terms enormous wealth on the coasts enormous poverty both on the coasts and in between and yet what seems to be missing in america are the the the, the, the symbols of aristocracy so when mm. you go to a store um the billionaire dresses in the same way as 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 the homeless person and and sometimes it's hard to actually distinguish between the two did you notice that in your travels around america do you think that perhaps in a way i guess it's the strength of america its democratic structure its democratic culture but because in truth it's not a democracy or at least it's not a egalitarian do there need to be more symbols of status in America if if the country's to work a bit better? That's a very interesting question because we do see incredible poverty every day in America, and it's um it's in the heartland, it's in the cities. I talked to a woman who lived in Rhode Island, had to live with her mother in uh, her senior center because she had nowhere else to live. I think the question of wealth in America is also about a consolidation of power. So the people who are the wealthiest are pulling a lot of the strings and own a lot of our media. And I just want to pivot back to this real quick. They want to see us divided against each other. I think it is in Fox News' best interest. It's in these big media conglomerates' best interest to have us not talking to each other. So I think it is a problem that there is tremendous wealth inequality in America. As far as these symbols of, of status, um, I think there's an additional piece to this that wealth looks different in different parts of the country as well. Um, a dollar goes further in West Virginia than it does in New York. And I didn't have the privilege of very many billionaires uh, on my journey, but I met a lot of regular people from people who- I'm not sure that's a privilege, Ryan. I'm sure yeah, it's a misfortune. I, I, it's, uh, I, I mean, I'm sure I would have stayed in some very nice, very nice places. But um, yeah, I mean, the question of inequality in America is probably one of the starkest differences between when uh, Alexis de Tocqueville visited and uh, the America we're living in now. And it's not to say that these problems don't exist and they're not serious. It's to say, what can we do about it in the meantime, in our communities to ships and, and talk to people and change their minds about the way they vote sometimes increases inequality and having those conversations is really important because it feels like no one's having conversations about real things anymore. Paul Simon, of course, wrote his great song, uh, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Your, your book is about 50 states or at least 50 states of mind. Did you find in your travels around America that there was a uniqueness to each state? Are there 50 states of mind in America? I just 
well, a couple of years ago, I drove across the country from San Francisco to Philadelphia, driving my daughter to, to college in Philadelphia. I was struck by the fact that Ohio and Michigan and Minnesota, they all look quite similar. Maybe I was missing something, but is there a uniqueness to each state? Are there 50 states of mind in America, Ryan? Oh, absolutely. You can't always see it from the highway, but when you get into these, these towns and these neighborhoods, they all have shared history. Sometimes the border of the state is not always the end-all be-all of, of culture. Uh, it's not always like you, you pass one line from one place to another, but the, the history that is shared in these different communities. And for example, Columbus, Indiana. Have you ever heard of Columbus, Indiana? I've been there. Not any have it's, heard of it. It's, it's incredible, right? You don't think Indiana and then you think a, a fantastic museum of a town of modern architecture. Um, did, did you find it to be kind of a, a jewel of Indiana? When you went, yeah, I mean it's 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 a nice place. But does that summarize Indiana? I mean, there are of course lovely towns, lovely certainly the the natural habitat is astonishing. But I, I'm not convinced that each state has its own state of mind. I mean, maybe there are 50 states of mind, but they're not in each state. Absolutely, and I think that there are different perspectives that come from living in a state, uh, some shared history, the football team you root for, but it's also about the individual stories that make up a particular state of mind. So for example, if we talk about a neighborhood, uh, we're talking about Indiana, I visited the Harrison Center for the Arts and that's run by Joanna Beatty Taft. And she talks about moving to Indiana after living in DC and starting her nonprofit in a neighborhood where she feels like the outsider. She feels like she wasn't a part of the community. So she buys a house, she starts running this nonprofit, and she starts inviting the neighbors who live in that community to start telling her the story of the neighborhood. Most people just come in, they put up a, a fence, they sit in their backyard, they don't get to know people. So it's less about 50 states of mind, but that every state has a story within a community. It's not like every Indiana person shares a, a cosmology or a point of view, but there are so many states of mind within each, each different community. So I think you could say Columbus could be representative of Indiana, which is a pretty progressive town with a really cool art scene. Uh, but then there are other parts of Indiana that are very conservative. My brother went to college in Bloomington and I passed about 16 billboards advertising gun shows on the way there. But it's about our preconceived notions of each state and showing that there are states of mind in those states that make you look at Indiana differently or look at different conservative states differently. Because ultimately, this is about our travel choices. We Americans often don't get out of our bubble and travel to places because we have preconceived about the types of people who might live in a place called Indiana or a place like I don't know, Nebraska. But there are these really interesting, great stories in these places. But it is not to say that every single person shares a particular state of mind or point of, point of view in a state. But 
within the state, there are a lot of different stories and states of mind that need to be explored. Uh, if we out of our bubbles and travel more. R Ryan, you have some background, not just as a traveler, uh, but also um, as someone who's written quite a lot of theater. Um, you've put on some performances. I wonder whether rather than thinking about America as a whole, we might think about it as a theatrical stage, as a performance. And in that way, it acquires more wholeness and coherence. I don't know if you've ever heard of a play called The Laramie Project, but it's one of my favorites because uh, Moises Kaufman and his theater troupe, The Tectonic Players, traveled to Laramie, Wyoming uh, in the aftermath of the Matthew Shepard murder in 1998, I believe, and interviewed people in the town. And that play that came out of it is made from those interviews. And it paints a picture of the different points of view grappling with one particular incident. And it really paints a picture of Wyoming, not as this, you know, anti-gay place of uh, a terrible tragedy, but people in a community dealing with that issue. So I've actually, uh, after the book comes out, I'm, I want to adapt this story into a stage play in the, in the vein of the Laramie Project, because I think I would the monologue... Into a music, uh, I would make it into a musical, and, and in that sense, it, it, it could be memorable, because I think it requires, and I, I think you're right, it requires a sort of a, a radical rethink of, of what we're expecting, because otherwise everything just conforms to all the most negative stereotypes and assumptions that uh, the, the, I pointed at the beginning that are full of, uh, full of media. Plus, I mean, the fact that Americans are divided on politics doesn't make America divided. I mean, even the founders recognized that there would inevitably be divisions. And I think we're in this really interesting moment where politics has become synonymous with values. So the way someone votes uh, all of a sudden a bunch of cultural associations associated with that. And I think that's by design. I mean, think of the past five years in America. Trump was very good at making an issue in our culture become a political issue, become a dividing line. So you're either on this side or, or that side. And I think it's very interesting that a lot of people that are traditionally Democrats found themselves on the more Republican side of the issue or, or vice versa. So I think we're actually not as divided as we seem. We have just been fed a bunch of very divisive issues and been told we have to take a side. And then the side we corresponds with the political party that we should join increasingly. But actually, there's a lot of gray area in all of these things going on. And I think social media has really contributed to us not being able to talk about the gray area, to not have those conversations and say, I see your point when you actually do, because that is an art that has been lost. I think we kind of gaslight each other into thinking that no one has any valid points anymore. When there's actually quite a few times where I could say, I see where you're coming from, even if Although, I don't agree. Uh, I, I take your point, but um, there are some areas where uh, I think it's, it's hard to say, well, you may have a point. We did a show last week with Kelly Weil, who has a new book out on flat earthers. 
uh, I mean, we have to draw the line somewhere, don't we? Um, uh, in in terms of saying, uh, uh, Ryan saying, look, this is wrong. The world is not flat. 100%. And I think that's the sort of crying wolf aspect. If every little thing we refuse to see to point, if every little thing we can't say, I see where you're coming from, then everything becomes equal. It's, well, if it's, the world is flat, you'll always see where someone's coming from, right? I, I guess I guess that's true. And I as that was a, a bad joke. I couldn't resist. Yeah, yeah. Though. I <laughs> but I do. You see, do you see the point I'm trying to make? It's that that if everything becomes refused to yield on, then there's no hierarchy of importance. We, if we can say I refuse to see your point on anything, then saying I refuse to see your point on flat Earth is just as uh, important as refusing someone's point on, well, I don't like what celebrity did at this event and I don't see your point. It, the hierarchy of importance starts to disappear if we don't talk to each other and we can't actually say, this is where I put my foot down. Well, you put your foot down, Ryan. Uh, in America, you did 23,000 miles, a great journey like Alexis de Tocqueville. The book's out at the end of next month. Congratulations. I think it's an exciting project. Turn it into a musical, turn it into all sorts of things. It's already a podcast. Uh, finally, maybe end with an anecdote. You, you, your book is full of anecdotes, people you met. But maybe well, what's the most memorable anecdote about America for being optimistic about its future in your 23,000-mile journey? I'm going to tell a bit of a difficult story because I can't just say that everything is optimistic, but this story I think really kind of encapsulates why it's, this book is interesting and important. So I visited uh, Newtown, Connecticut, which is the site of the Sandy Hook massacre mm. that happened in 2012. And obviously gun control is a huge issue in America, but I visited the site of the school and there was no memorial. And I was feeling like I needed to talk to someone. So I visited a church. I visited a Methodist church and I went to their spaghetti, stup, uh, spaghetti supper. And I ended up running into her who sat down with me and talked about being in this town where everyone is mourning an event, but some people are also trying to move past it and, and make something more of their, of their life. And the pastor ended up sharing with me that she had lost her son, the the year before. And that contributed to her being able to understand the grief and the nuance in this community in a way that she may not have been able to understand before. So what Pastor Lori said to me is that it's connected and nothing is lost. And that means that we need to take tragedy and find a way to connect with other people. And we can't change the things that have happened, but Pastor Laurie coming in and finding a way to provide uh, a space for people to have these conversations, to, to provide hope, to be able to help people understand each other and have the difficult conversations of how do you move past a tragedy just really touched me and is full of so many nuances of, of grief and also a community rebuilding itself. And so th there are terrible terrible tragedies that happen in America every day. We have insurmountable 
insurmountable issues that face us, but there are also people doing the work to build our communities and connect us to each other. So I think that's probably one of the anecdotes that illustrates the gravity of the troubles that America faces, but also the reasons that I feel like we should be optimistic because there are people that are showing up for each other in our community and, and helping us be whole. <laughs>